Bible reading this morning comes from Mark 5, Mark 5 verse 40. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Friends, um, if you could turn with me again to the wonderful book of Mark. I'm going to be following along from our reading before. So that's Mark chapter uh, 6. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to to verse 6. So we're returning uh, to the book we were looking at before Joseph and picking it up at Mark chapter 6 from 1 through to verse 6. Let's hear from God's word. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we can only stand on your wonderful word because of your wonderful Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray now that your spirit would guide us and teach us as we look closer at your wonderful word. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, having finished the amazing story of Joseph, we return to the story Indeed, the person that we saw over and over again, it pointed to. And speaking of that word amazing, during the week I decided to do a little word search in Mark's gospel to see how many times he uses it. And as we're talking about Jesus here, not surprisingly, it pops up pretty early. Chapter 1 and verse 21, have a listen. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach, and the people were amazed. And of course, friends, they're not the last. Small groups had this reaction to Jesus. Massive crowds, thousands strong. His closest allies, the disciples, his greatest enemies, the Pharisees, are both reported by Mark to be amazed at Jesus. 
Even Pontius Pilate, the man who hands him over to that baying crowd, is amazed at him before he does. Now, friends, you may be thinking, okay, Pete, that's great, and and thanks for the reminder. But hey, we are talking about the divine Son of God here. Of course people had that reaction to him. Tell me something we don't know. Tell us something new. Okay, well, how about this? There was a moment when the shoe was on the other foot. One incident in Jesus' ministry when Mark reports it was him who has this amazed reaction. And as we just saw, it occurs in the section that we just read. So this morning we're going to take a closer look at what causes the shoe to be on the other foot for Jesus. And in looking at it, what it shows us and teaches us today. So if you have your Bibles in front of you and haven't already, please open them up at Mark chapter 6. But friends, having turned there, before we jump into verse 1, we need to pan back a little to see the context in which this incident occurs. And as we saw before from our first reading, chapter 6 follows hot on the heels of a pretty big event, doesn't it? And the genesis of this big event begins back in chapter 5, verse 21, when a man from that group that had been opposing Jesus one from that religious set approaches him. And friends, knowing by now how these interactions normally go, that hardly sparks our attention, does it? Here we go again, another foot soldier coming to accuse Jesus of something. But if you're thinking that, you'd be wrong, as the one making a beeline for Jesus is no no no-name foot soldier. Now, is that who I think it is? Yes, it is. That's the head honcho of the synagogue. That's Jairus. Now, I wonder why he has cleared his very important diary to head out onto the dusty streets to somehow find Jesus. Why is he seeking him out? And why him and not one of his underlings like usual? This should be interesting. And friends, it sure is. And more than we or anyone who was there that day could possibly know, as Jairus, the big wig synagogue ruler, having found Jesus, rather than, you know, standing tall, chest out, and waving that finger at him, immediately falls at his feet. And having stopped Jesus in his tracks... Jairus then looks up at him and in desperation makes this plea. Verse 23. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. My friend, speaking of amazing, it is hard to imagine just how stunned the people following Jesus would have been at this. As in an instant, 
all differences are put aside. Indeed, friends, not just differences. Now, here we see behind that wall of of opposition and hostility, many in the opposing camp knew exactly, knew precisely who Jesus is. And Jairus, the synagogue ruler, is clearly one of them as he, in desperation and fear for his daughter's life, breaks ranks. He rushes out of his spiritual bunker. He crosses no man's land and goes straight to the enemy. For he knows that Jesus has the firepower to fix his daughter. And so with a nod of the head and a hand back to his feet, we have this remarkable moment where Jesus walks side by side with one of Israel's top religious leaders. But as they travel across town to the place where his daughter lay, another remarkable incident takes place along the way. A woman subject to horrible chronic bleeding, notices the growing crowd and recognising who was out in front, she thinks to herself, here's my chance. But I don't want to make a big scene. And my problem is just too confronting and publicly embarrassing. So what to do? I know if I can just secretly touch his clothes, that'll be enough. And so she silently weaves her way through the throng and then reaches through some bodies and touches the back of Jesus' cloak. And bang, immediately she knows it's done. Friends, with that, we have this very, very unique healing, don't we? Not a word exchanged, nothing at all between the healer and the healed. Or so she hopes, as she now seeks to to silently back out from that crowd once more. But it's not to be, as Jesus then immediately stops, verse 30, and looking around at the crowd asks, who touched my clothes? Now the crowd, not surprisingly, are confused as people are are touching and and bumping into Jesus left, right and centre. But Jesus knew someone touched him with a different sort of a touch. And so he continues to search this one out. This, the woman, knowing she now needs to fess up, comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And as she does, Mark tells us she was literally trembling with fear. Now, was Jesus going to now shame and condemn her in front of this huge crowd for stealing a healing? And so reverse it? Well, the answer is no. Now Jesus is seeking her out to clear up any possible confusion at what saw her healed. 
don't make the mistake that it was my cloak, as if it has some sort of magic healing power. No, precious daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. And friends, with that assurance from Jesus, let's take stock for a moment. Here's our scene. Jesus is walking side by side with a major religious figure who is so certain of who Jesus is and what he can do, he has forgotten all possible repercussions, dropped all protocols to seek him out. And then as they travel together, we have this second incident where Jesus makes sure this woman's healing is is in no way confused. It was her faith in him and nothing else that saw her completely healed. Now, friends, are you beginning to see the central lesson in this story? Well, if not, it's not finished yet, so let's keep going. The hold-up caused by the woman's healing has proven to be costly as a group now approaches to tell Jairus his daughter has succumbed to her illness. And in what they say next, it's fairly clear that they are all pretty embarrassed, very embarrassed, that Jairus in his desperation sought a miracle from you-know-who. Come on, mate, let's not bother the teacher anymore because, you know, at the end of the day, That's all he is. So come on, old mate, old friend. Time to let it go. Time to let him go and return to our side of the fence. But in response to this, Jesus looks straight at Jairus and tells him to not let that trust that he has placed in him go. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And so Jairus holds firm. On arrival, he is hit with a terrible scene. The lamenting for his daughter has already begun. Is this the moment to let his faith go? No, says Jesus. Grab your wife, Jairus. And so he does. And into the house they go, Peter, James and John in tow. And finding where Jesus lay, Jesus then says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they weren't simply amazed, writes Mark, but verse 42, completely astonished. And friends, with that, we reach a very significant, a big, big high point in Jesus' ministry so far. Israel's Messiah has has calmed the storm. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. But here, with a simple word, he has brought the dead back to life. And friends, the golden thread that that gets us to this point, 
the clear theme that, that drives this story forward from start to finish is Jairus's fear nothing, forget all protocols faith. And the healing of the woman on the way makes it crystal clear where this faith must be centered. It's not to be in religion. It's not to be in ourselves. It's not in some artifact, but in this person. The lesson? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Center your faith firmly in this one and nothing is impossible. The miracle you are after will be yours. He will do the extraordinary. But friends, I suspect Jesus wouldn't be too happy with that explanation because extraordinary is not a word he would choose to explain what he does for faithful Jairus and for the faithful woman. As the two miracles here along with all the rest are only seen by us as extraordinary because we have become used to a world that is seriously off kilter, friends. Seriously off kilter. The place where evil flourishes. This creation which is chaotic and dangerous. This life where we all fall sick and eventually die. All of that is understood as normal. Just how life is. But then into this normality arrives Jesus. And in his casting out of demons, in his calming of the storm, in his healing the sick and now raising the dead, what Jesus is showing us each and every time in these events is all those horrible things that assail us are far, far from normal. And by instantly fixing them, Jesus is demonstrating that he has the ability to return us to normality. The normality we had before it all got distorted by rebellion and sin. And so Jesus confronts this distortion. And as he turns a fallen, broken bit of the creation the right way up again, what he is showing us is what he can do in micro, he can do in macro. Jesus has come not simply to give us a glimpse of how things once were, but to usher back in how things once were, totally and completely. Now, what does all that have to do with Jairus? Well, if we want part of what that is, if we want in on that with Jesus, then look no further than Jairus. Because what we see in him, friends, is a person of genuine faith. This is a person who, seeing Jesus trades in all worldly benefits, all worldly status and reputation to fall at Jesus' feet 
and then publicly walk by his side and then stay by his side. The result of his faith? Death to life. And so with this big wig religious leader pointing this out, leading the way, and the clear result for him and his family, could this be a watershed moment? Is this a spiritual tipping point for Israel? Is this their aha moment where the rest of God's people from top to bottom follow Jairus' lead and put their faith finally in their Messiah? Well, friends, with that big, big question raised, we go to the very next line. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Great move, Jesus. Back to your home. If any group at all is going to do a Jairus, it's going to be them. After all, these are your people. Jairus had to make a huge leap of faith. These guys, only a tiny step. And so with a sense of optimism, we read on as Jesus heads for his hometown. And friends, although we all know this name, the name of this place, which is Nazareth, what you may not know is Nazareth is not a big centre. Now, back then, this place had a population of roughly 500 people. In other words, if you sometimes get the feeling that everyone knows everyone here in Olverston, well, shrink Olvey down to about the size of North Motton. And friends, now that feeling isn't just a feeling, it's a reality. And so Jesus returns to the place where everybody knows him and knows him well. Bits of furniture he and his father lovingly made, quite likely in every single house. And as Jesus would have applied his trade with absolute integrity along with everything else that he did, it would have been all smiles and backslaps as he walked into town. And as people see he has now switched trades from carpenter to preacher, Jesus is invited to take the pulpit at the very next worship service, isn't he? And so he does. And as he begins to speak, as he opens up the scriptures, this hometown crowd have the very same reaction that we talked about earlier, don't they? Second half of verse 2, have a look. And many who heard him were amazed. Brilliant. All that needs to happen now is for this amazement to translate into faith. Surely, you know, surely as one plus one equals two, this is now going to happen. Let's see, second half of verse two. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Friends, what just happened? 
Do these locals recognise Jesus' teachers with great authority? Yes, they do. No issue there. Tick. Do they also see he has heavenly wisdom, the likes of which they have never seen? Again, tick. Do they also know Jesus backs up his big words with big actions? Yes, again. And so with every single box ticked, clearly the result should be faith. Faith like that woman. Faith like Jairus. But no. Instead, having ticked all the boxes, the response is offence. The response is to remind Jesus of his place. Friends, can you see what's going on here? These town folk are offended, not because Jesus has failed since leaving town, but because he's succeeded, risen well above his station, resulting in small town envy and jealousy. And friends, with that in play, the last last thing this town folk are going to do is sing his praises. No, their job is to bring Jesus down a notch or two or three. You are the carpenter's boy and don't you forget it. Seeing and hearing this, Jesus finishes off his sermon with these words. Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honour. And so Jesus, who has just had a general of the opposing religious establishment throw himself at his feet, now cuts a lonely figure as he walks out of his local church. Friends, what a sharp grating, massive contrast between these two stories. From raising the dead to nothing more than raising of eyebrows. From raising the dead to Jesus, verse 5, not being able to do any miracles there. Unable, not because Jesus couldn't, but because, well, what would be the point See, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not part of the world his miracles point to. Without faith, these locals remain wedded to this fallen, dying, sinful world. That's their reality. There is a new, wonderful reality coming, but not without Jesus. Not without faith in him not without the faith expressed by the woman and by Jairus. And without this faith, Jesus has nothing for you. Zip. Zero. And while that was true for the vast majority, there were a few pockets of resistance in that town who bucked the trend and did have faith in Christ. And so Jesus makes sure he seeks them out before he leaves, end of verse 5. But the overall scene is a spiritual desert. It's a faithless wasteland. And as Jesus surveys the scene, perhaps still thinking about the response of Jairus and that woman, 
we come to that reaction from him that we talked about before. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Jairus' response, his reaction, is clearly not going to be the tipping point for Israel. It's clearly not going to be a trend. How will Jesus respond to this astonishing lack of faith amongst his own? Well, friends, it's right there in the heading below. Jesus sends out the twelve. Jesus multiplies his ministry in response to his horrible, disheartening rejection. Why does he push on? Because, friends, the miracle of the kingdom of God that he is bringing in can't be thwarted and it won't be stopped through his rejection. Indeed, friends, it will be be through people's complete lack of faith that will see Jesus perform another death-to-life miracle. And this one, this time, will be the turning point, will be the tipping point in his ministry. For Jesus' own death-to-life miracle is going to pay the price for every faithless deed. Friends, what do we learn from this one time Jesus is amazed? We learn this. Jesus' response to human rejection is not the same in kind, but a steely, loving, divine resolve to get to the core of our heart problem and deal with it. What a friend. What a king, what a saviour we have in Jesus Christ. But friends, to receive him as such, to receive his greatest of all miracles, the very same requirement is put before us as we've seen right here in these verses and that requirement of course is faith. And friends, as you hear that, it's it's not a question of whether you have this faith or not. Because we all have faith. When you're a passenger in a car, you trust the driver that they are going to get you to the destination. We all have faith. And every single day, in small ways and big, We exercise that faith. Don't kid yourself or let Satan kid you that so-and-so has faith but not me. Now, if you're human, you have the ability. The only question is, who or what are you putting your faith in? And your answer to that will determine whether you're in Jairus' camp or the camp who shooed Jesus out of town. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we, in seeing the great contrast in these two stories, uh, Lord, we pray that you would work in us, that you would draw us to yourself, to your Son. Uh, Lord, knowing who he is, help us to put all things aside that we trust in in this world and put our trust, hope and faith in the only one who can save us from this world. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite being confronted with incredible lack of faith, that Jesus pressed on to the goal, which is to save us from the consequences of it. Our Heavenly Father, as we hear this truth clearly expressed, if our trust, if our faith is in anything else right now, help us to centre it in the only one who deserves it, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, till he returns or calls us home. And we pray these things in his precious and glorious name. Amen.